Stranger Rangers. This is Bree. This is Patina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. So I'm super excited about this case. Um, we're doing it on Zoom again, guys. So it's going to be kind of another quick little one, uh, but a good one. And for this episode, I want to give a shout out to my awesome neighbor, Bridget who let me borrow this book. It's called Murder and Mayhem in the Willamette Valley. So it's all stories about um, crime that's happened in the Willamette Valley. And, and she is also our newest Patreon. Yeah. So thank you so much. Um, yeah. So this story is about Charity Lamb and she has kind of been dubbed Oregon's Lizzie Borden. Oh, Never yeah. heard of her. I hadn't either. Yeah, this is a fun little story that was in here. As fun yeah. as, you know, crime can be. Right. <laughs> I was actually so talking to Bridget last night and she told me about oh, you? that book. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see what what's really in it. Yeah. And it's fun because I mean, we're going way back with this story, like Mm. 1850s. Oh shit. Which I was telling Tyson at dinner the other night. I was like, I feel like everything that we've done has pretty much been post like 1950 for the most part. So we're going like a whole century back in time. Yeah. That's crazy. That's good. So this is, uh, the story about charity lamb. Um, just a little bit about her. It's unknown specifically where exactly she was born, but some accounts say maybe North Carolina or Northern Virginia. So definitely over on the East Coast. Um, for that time, she was definitely an, a well-educated woman. Um, she either learned how to read and write at home or in school. So I know at that time, you know, women being at home or women being in the education system, you know, it was super yeah. up in the air. But nonetheless, in nine or not 19, 19. 18, <laughs> 1837, she met and married her husband, Nathaniel Lamb, in North Carolina. And they eventually had their first daughter, Marianne, within that first year of their marriage. And this, they were pretty much like the quintessential, like pioneer couple. They gotcha. moved all over the place, had kids, were farmers, you know, all of that. So from North Carolina, they eventually ended up moving to Indiana. And by 1850, the U.S. Census had records of the family, which was now a family of six living in, yeah, living in white Missouri. So a good amount of time to be able to pop out four kids. I mean, 1837 to 1850. So like I said, they were, you know, the quintessential pioneer family. And eventually the family would pack up and make their trek across the U.S., um, by the Oregon Trail. Yeah. Makes sense. Which was, you know, if you don't know anything about traveling the Oregon Trail, um it was a treacherous adventure for yeah. people to make. Um if any of our listeners are fans of Yellowstone and they go back and want to watch like the prequel 1883, it kind of paints a really good picture of how challenging it was during that time, I mean, disease and terrain and weather and all of that. I mean, the terrain is uh, alone. 
you know, not only, yeah, it's, there's some spots, I think we saw some during our last road trip where you could see, it says, it's been untouched since the ruts that these wheels had to go through, or the, you know, what they formed, and it's like, oh, can you imagine being in a, you know, wagon, no, children, no food, trying to cross rivers, Mm -mm. mountains, I mean, you have to go through the Rockies and the Cascades, Yeah. yeah. Just just a wild, wild trek for people to make to the West Coast. But unfortunately, Charity and Nathaniel did have a pretty unhappy married life. Um, he had a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And in addition to being a farmer, he was also shamelessly a thief. He would steal livestock from neighbors and would threaten his family if they ever told on him, you know, that he was going around and doing this. So not the most stand-up citizen of what that time. What do you steal a cow? What do you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's. I mean, God, a cow will feed a family of six for. You don't sneak away with a cow, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess a a, a five hundred pound animal is not the easiest thing in the world. To, Shut up, Bessie! I'm taking it to a new yeah, home. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, he would kind of threaten his family if they ever, you know, were to tell on him or anything like that. And sadly, their children regularly spoke of Nathaniel's beatings on charity for absolutely no reason. Again, we're in a completely different time, not justifying anything. But, you know, I don't think that this was very uncommon. Right. For back Plus, if he was an alcoholic, then that probably explains some of it totally most definitely and some of these would happen you know like I said for no reason one time she's said to have um been beaten because she refused to carry a log and it said that at that time she was likely pregnant so she's like no I'm not gonna haul this stump over there for you and he obviously didn't like that very much yeah so She's like, I'm already like carrying it. your baby. Exactly. I don't want to carry a yeah. log too. No. Yeah. Chop your own firewood, my husband. Not not playing that game. Um, sadly, a few other occasions of his abuse, he had also thrown a hammer at her head one time. Another time he threatened to shoot her when she attempted to leave him. And then one winter, he allegedly pushed her down in the snow and kicked her repeatedly. Jesus Christ. So he was a very, very physically abusive husband. And I'm sure there was, you know, mental and emotional abuse that came along with that. Where there's physical, the other two follow for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So when the family packed up and moved to Oregon, they ended up landing in what is now known what is now known and I think was known then as Oregon City which technically is what has been deemed the end of the Oregon Mm -hmm. Trail so um for those of you that aren't geographically familiar with Oregon Oregon City is about a 20-ish minute drive south of Portland so it's just right on the outskirts of of where we're at So while living in Oregon, they had a neighbor by the name of Mr. Collins, and it's rumored that he may have had eyes for charity or their 19-year-old daughter, Marianne, or maybe had eyes for both. Oh, okay. So At least she was 19, so. Yeah, she was of age. Yeah. 
Um, so he was safe in that regard. Yeah. But along the way, it said that there was an exchange of letters between Mr. Collins and the women and Nathaniel caught wind of them. Or he maybe even potentially actually found one of the letters. Yeah. It's kind of unclear if he just like heard rumors of them passing letters back and forth or if he actually found one of them. So nonetheless, this whole exchange, whether it was with his daughter or with his wife or with both, left Nathaniel like furious and enraged. And he told Charity multiple times that week that he was going to kill her and abandon the rest of the family so that he could move to California. And there's even a part in the book where he says something like, um, I'm going to, because I don't know if Charity was pregnant at this time or had just had a baby. And I don't know if he's calling Mm -hmm. her a cow or specifically referring to a cow, but I guess during that time he said like, and I'm going to, I'm going to take the baby with me without the nursing mother. So I don't have that to worry about. So I don't know if he's referring to an actual baby, but he says like, so I don't have to, so that I don't have to take the cow with me. I, I don't know, but if he was calling her a cow, hmm, yeah, doesn't seem out of his character, No, but I'm not sure if he's meaning that literally or if he's being an asshole. also steals cows, so maybe he doesn't want to move the cow he stole again. Maybe. He just wants to put the calf in his covered wagon and hightail his ass down to California. It sounds like like it's a reference to her because he's an asshole, so. Exactly. That's, That's where my thoughts lied with that comment. So only about um, four years later, in May 13th of 1854, they have a 13-year-old son named Abram, and he recalls a really chilling event. So Nathaniel was getting ready to leave for a bear hunting trip that morning, and Nathaniel and Charity were alone for a moment out in the yard. He was probably gathering all of his stuff for the hunting trip, and she's doing, you know, her thing, Mm -hmm. the laundry and whatnot. And Nathaniel may have thought that they were alone, but Abram saw his dad steady his gun on the railing in the front of their house and aimed his rifle at charity. He also has a nine-year-old brother, Thomas, and Thomas also recalls this event and says that it wasn't until his sister Marianne turned around towards them that his dad took his sight off of charity and aimed his shot at a tree. So whether he was just lining up in that moment, kind of playing out this murder in his mind, or he was actually going to shoot her right then and there, I guess we'll never know. But um, pretty crazy as a 13 and a nine-year-old, see your dad, like, line up your mom with the rifle with obvious intent to want to play something out. That's so scary. Crazy. I bet that's a vivid crazy. memory for them. That was a vivid memory. Like, like no, you know what I mean? Like they got every detail right about it. Like they're not wrong about what they saw. They Absolutely. saw what they saw. Yeah, exactly. And I believe that these two boys um, in, in a trial that happens later, I believe that these um, quotes came from them kind of testifying to this, mm-hmm. to their dad's behavior. 
But um, after that missed opportunity to take out his wife, Nathaniel and his neighbor went off for their bear hunt. So, you know, I like, and in the book, they do a really good job of this too, but just to like kind of put ourselves in charity's mindset, you know, like I said, I know this was a completely different time. This is like almost 200 years ago, you know, things were very, very different socially and culturally and all of that. Um, and although like this was the normal routine of a pioneer woman, which would have been charity's daily life, you know, she's doing laundry, she's scrubbing, Mm -hmm. she's nursing babies, raising children, preparing food from scratch, gardening, et cetera, et cetera. Making that butter. Churning that butter. I mean, I definitely have aspirations of having a homestead someday. But when you're like trying to raise a family of six amongst all that, that's really hard. Yeah. Especially, I mean, that would be a lot. Doing the hang drying of the laundry on the clothesline, Mm -hmm. everything. I mean, you're like, you've got some pretty good calluses built up on your hands from all the labor that you're putting in around the house. So, you know, she's doing all that. And then all the meanwhile, at this specific time in May, I mean, what's the weather like in Oregon during that time? It's super wet. We're at the tail end of spring. We are itching for summer to start. So you're probably all uncomfortable during that time too. Your laundry is probably never 100% dry. Right. Despite how hard you're working, you know, to make that a reality. So I just imagine this woman just being at the end of her ropes not being able to be dry, preparing all this stuff for her family. And all the meanwhile, you have this husband who is belittling you and trying to kill you. Yeah. Every step of the way. A useless asshole. He might bring home a bear or a cow, but. Yeah. I mean, I guess you can be grateful for that, but that only, I don't know. I just feel bad for this. It could woman. be vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, potatoes last all winter, right? Yeah. You can survive on that. <laughs> That's funny. And so this is kind of one of the first cases where we see this whole defense introduced of, you know, essentially what is known as battered woman syndrome now yeah. mm-hmm. and the act of self-defense when you murder somebody being like an actual thing that you can, you know, go to plead your innocence for in court. Now, sadly, Charity had become very frail at this point after the birth of their fifth child. Um, I mean, this woman is probably just so run down, you know, it takes a, a lot out of you with all that going on. And so frail charity, she's at home, she's preparing this dinner for her whole family and for Nathaniel to return home from bear hunting. And they're sitting around the table that night and he's gloating and telling stories of his hunting adventure around the dinner table. And it's at this point that charity seizes her moment to defend herself. She picked up an ax from the outside wood pile. She brought it inside and she hit Nathaniel in the back of the head with it. She hit him with such force that she is said to have had to heave the axe free from his head before she struck him again a second time. And after these two blows, Charity dropped the axe and ran to a neighbor's house. 
there is an account of Nathaniel, I believe one of his, I believe it was one of his sons that said this, um, that Nathaniel still was able to get up and walk around shockingly, but that he had like kind of laid there and like twitched for a little bit. I'm just like, bro, you got struck in the head twice with an ax. How in the world did you get up and walk away from that? Even a couple steps. Like how did that not just like completely take you out? Just crazy. Um, I don't know how quickly, because again, we're in like the 1850s, but a doctor did come and tend to Nathaniel, but he did ultimately pass away from the injuries, Yeah, but not until a week later, he survived what? a week after being freaking axed in the skull. And it said that he passed away from an infection. Damn. But who, I mean, I'm like, man, you, you had to have not just hit him once, but hit him twice in the right spot where it didn't do any it damage. It didn't kill him right away. Yeah. That at that time, they purely believe that he just passed away from an infection. My mind was blown when I read that part. So Charity's made a ran for it. She runs to the neighbor's house, oh, but she's found, okay. yeah, but she's found the next day just kind of casually hiding out and just like nonchalantly smoking a cigar. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just trying to picture that scene in my head. I'm like, you're kind of a badass a little bit. Did she leave her kids at the house with him or? Oh yeah, she booked kids? it. She booked it. Just left when hit out at a neighbor's house. I don't know what her intended plan was moving forward from this, but yeah, yeah, just hiding out neighbor's house, smoking on a cigar. Kind of like, oh, you got me kind of thing. Okay. Well, I might as well enjoy this before I go to prison for the rest of my life. Right. So Charity is arrested and her trial begins September 11th of 1854. And at this time, women were not allowed to serve on juries in Oregon. It wasn't until 1912 that we were allowed to serve on juries. So she had a purely all-male jury, definitely not a fair jury of your peers, but Mm. nonetheless, that was the makeup of hers. And Charity's health had continued to decline, and she was described as being emaciated and sallow, wearing dirty, thread-bearing clothing. Wow. Now, Now, her defense lawyer, James Kelly, insisted on Charity's innocence and that she was not guilty by reason of insanity and what at the time was known as monomaniac or someone who is obsessed or preoccupied with one idea or thing. And so I think he's trying to paint this picture of, you know, this abused woman. She's just purely focused on survival. Right. Obsessed with survival and found her opportunity and took it. Um, And furthermore, you know, she could not have been in her right mind at the time because she was so afraid for her life. Yeah. In turn, the prosecution countered with an expert medical witness who said she was, quote, very much excited, looked wild, looked wild like out of her eyes and that he thought that she was pretending. Oh, during the trial. Yeah, or maybe oh. he did like some interviews with her before the trial happened. And that was somebody that the prosecution 
used to call forward because his opinion was like, no, she looks like a wild animal, you know, just like chomping at the bit to be able to, you know, off her husband. Oh, damn. And in addition to this, they also used the evidence that, you know, she had fled from the scene and that didn't help her make her look innocent at all. And when they brought her her and she didn't seem, you know, remorseful when they found her or when they were asking her about any of that, which sorry, not sorry. I probably wouldn't be very remorseful yeah. either. So I can't blame you for that charity. Yeah. Not at all. And because her weapon of choice was an ax, they also tried to use this to show premeditation because she had to go out of the house to grab the axe from the wood pile Mm. to bring it in. It wasn't just like it was sitting there off to the side and she had a rage blackout, you know. I'll be honest. I kind of thought that when you said that she walked outside, grabbed Mm -hmm. the axe from the wood pile. So it's not a turnaround. What's the first thing I can see and grab kind of thing. Exactly. And the fact that it wasn't um, in the heat of a moment of a moment where she was in danger. That was a little right. odd to me. Mm. It wasn't that he was like actively yeah. screaming at her or saying mm-hmm. anything. You know, he's telling stories of his or lunging. Trip. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, now, the jury did go back and forth for a while about her innocence. And they had to kind of come back to the judge and be like, okay, what are we exactly, you know, trying yeah. to find her guilty of the parameters and all of that? Um, but they would end up finding her guilty of murder, but without premeditation. So I was a little bit surprised about that. So without that premeditation part being linked into her guilty murder charge, this landed her with second degree murder and actually made her the first woman, not just in Oregon, but in the whole Pacific Northwest to be convicted of murder. Look at her trend setting. I know. Just kidding. Not just a pioneer of land, but a pioneer in uh, murderous women. Yeah. (laughs) That's wild. Second degree murder. I know. What was she sentenced to? So she actually was, okay, so I'm going to get to that in just a second. But one last little thing to note about her trial was she wasn't allowed to testify in her own defense, but she was allowed to make a statement after the fact of her sentencing. And she said, quote um well I don't know that I murdered him he was alive when I saw him last I knew he was going to kill me he told me not to go and if I went that he would follow me and find me somewhere and he was a mighty good shot I did it to save my life I mean that first part of her statement just kind of makes me laugh like if I murdered him I don't know that I murdered him prove it to say he died of an infection <laughs> that was not me okay i hit him exactly in the spot in his brain that didn't kill him so <laughs> i cut him i, I cut, cut him. him twice you ran into my knife <laughs> twice. i don't know what to tell you ran into my axe wow so what i don't charities- think i killed him i know i was like you know what charity Girl. Say whatever you want to. It's fine. You got your sentence, but I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah. You didn't know that you murdered him in that moment, but we can't <laughs> speak for intent. So um, when it comes to Charity's prison time, she spent two years in the Oregon City Jail, and then she was transferred to the Portland Penitentiary, where she would become 
Convict number eight. Now you asked about how long she spent in jail or her sentence. Mm -hmm. So it was weird because male inmates at this time with the same charges were let go after only two years in jail. Sadly enough for charity, she was never released. This was either through some sort of clerical error in her paperwork or otherwise, maybe they decided, um, it doesn't really like properly indicate when she was sentenced, how long she would be sentenced for. Wow. So she did spend the two years in, in an Oregon city jail, but then was transferred to a Portland one. So I don't know exactly what they brought down on her when they gave her her guilty verdict. Every year, every day, I'd yeah. be saying, "Is can I can I please go?" Yeah, absolutely. Especially once you hit the two year mark, knowing yeah. that you know other inmates with the exact same sentence had been released after two years. So I thought that was sad and and pretty crazy. And understandably so, Charity grew increasingly erratic, and she was eventually transferred to the Hawthorne Hospital for the Insane in 1962. I mean, that would drive anybody crazy. The Hawthorne Insane Asylum? Mm -hmm. That's pretty notorious here in in Portland. Um, Yeah. I actually don't know too much about it, and so I would like to learn a lot more yeah um there's a couple landmarks that we can go visit for it but um a lot of them are well a big piece of it there's a a cemetery that I went to clean uh gravestones at with my mother-in-law with Mm -hmm. Kim and a huge corner part of the lot is a place where they used to bury people that passed away while they were at the Hawthorne Asylum that right. no one claimed. Yeah. So there's no markers for them. There's no gravestones. There's nothing for them. They're just, uh, it's just, um, it's just a pit essentially where they Crazy. would put all the unclaimed people from Hawthorne Asylum in there. And now and how long ago was eerie. it that you guys did that? I think that was pre-pandemic. Okay. So like 2019 or early 2020. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's really, really interesting because they do talk about that part in this book. And so I'm going to circle back to that because I kind of want to touch on that a little bit more from the information that Mm -hmm. they alluded to in this book. Um, Before the Hawthorne Hospital, she was under the care of Dr. James Hawthorne, who I'm sure established Mm-hmm. asylum and it seems that James was really far ahead of his time for how he treated his patients he really advocated for more fresh air and less punishment mm-hmm. and that was totally you know opposite of commonly used you know practices and stuff like that in institutions at that time so I think he was really well beyond his years and I'm sure these you know patients were treated extremely well yeah given Given the circumstances. Given the circumstances, exactly. And while at Hawthorne 
Catherine, Charity seemed to have found peace. She is noted to have um, loved knitting and she would be seen kind of like sitting there knitting with a little bit of a half smile on her face with a demeanor of content. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that she, you know, although she never was released, um, that she did find contentment and peace with where she ended up. Good, good. But she did end up passing away September 16th of 1897. Her cause of death was an uh, ap- apoplexy, but what we now know essentially is as a stroke. Oh, so okay. A brain hemorrhage or a stroke or something like that. Yeah. And so to tie into what we were talking about, she was buried in an unmarked grave at the Hawthorne Asylum, and this portion would be known as Block 14. Yep. Okay. And around the 1930s, these graves were covered up with pavement, and a building was put up on the site in 1955, but it was torn down in 2004, and in 2008, Evidently, there were records that were discovered by an advocacy group that she may have been one of more than 100 asylum residents that were buried underneath, and that area would become a parking lot adjacent from the from Portland's Lone Fir Cemetery, mm-hmm. which is where you probably went and cleaned mm-hmm. great headstones with Kim. Yep. Now, this book claims that since 2008, Portland Metro fundraised and created a memorial for those buried mm-hmm. in block 14 and all of them, including charity lamb, um, had been identified from these oh. records and named. And so, I mean, you, you had said that there wasn't anything named on it. So I wonder if they just know of these people or if there maybe is a plaque somewhere that has these records of individuals that they found listed and posted around this memorial. So the last time I was there, they were erecting something that was on block 14. Okay. um, Showing that they were going to preserve it. And so maybe around there, there's, um, I'm trying to look up right now Mm. um, what it was that uh, they I knew there was some kind of conservation that they were planning on doing in that corner lot. And then okay. uh, I know there's some buildings or mausoleums next to it. So I don't know if one of maybe one of those sure. was meant to commemorate uh, those buried there. Now, is this the cemetery that's down um, in Southeast, like off of Holgate area? I'm looking it like- up right now. It's uh, between Burnside and Belmont. It's right off of Morrison. Yes. Okay. And okay. 20th. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's a little bit further West than I thought. I yeah. am thinking of the one that's kind of down by Walmart or where Walmart mm, used to yeah. be off of like Holgate in the 82nd area. So we should totally go there sometime. Yeah. And I would love to clean headstones. That would be like creepy. Awesome. Yeah. It's, um, Put on by a group called Friends of Lone Fur or something okay. like that. Um, and they do like one Saturday uh, a month and they get together and they, they clean up headstones, which is really a nice thing to do because otherwise, you know, it just gets forgotten. But it's a nice trail to run in for people and whatnot. Sure. Well, and I'm sure that they get really weather worn just given the, 
the weather elements that we have in the Northwest, everything's wet. It gets mossy really fast. Yeah. Um, a lot of cemeteries are still like pretty shaded and tree covered. So things don't really get a whole lot of an opportunity to dry out in between all of that. So I thought this was a fun little case yeah. to cover again, being a little bit close to home and seeing some dates and landmarks and stuff like that, that, you know, you and I, and probably a lot of our listeners recognize and whatnot. And, um, that's our little Oregon Lizzie Borden, Miss Charity Lamb. And thanks again, Bridget for, um, letting me borrow this book. It's got a bunch of cool little stories in it and I'll totally let you borrow it if she gives me the permission to pass it along so yeah for sure um, I'm trying to look up um some of the the pictures that I took there but there I is think I've seen some of them because did you and Mackenzie also go and do something like that one time as well not uh we didn't look up together any history of it but we did go there to take pictures <laughs> gotcha so that's where some of our pictures um came from but I went there to to clean headstones. There's just a picture of me cleaning one of oh, them. Oh, yep. Yeah, I've seen but that one. All uh yeah, we'll totally have to go because it's um super cool. I mean, it's a cemetery, but it has a lot of stories because of the Hawthorne Insane Asylum. Sure. Um, I mean, we could even make a date of it. There's uh the Hawthorne um food carts the Hawthorne the asylum food carts oh oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they're right down the street from there um I mean and we have a bridge name off the Hawthorne as well yeah so uh, a whole street yeah so he's a huge part of uh Portland's history and right. um like you said all the advocate work that he did for mental health and for mm. mental well-being and whatnot because I mean, Portland has a sordid past when it comes to what they did with those needing mental health um, sure. resources. Uh, Kim's house, my mother-in-law's house, used to be uh, a crazy house. Oh, I they... didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I know about Headless Ed or whatever. Yeah, Headward. <laughs> Headward. Headward. <laughs> My mother-in-law also has a ghost in her house <laughs> called Hedward. Um, and that's because uh, it's the story goes that someone uh, hung themselves in the basement and so their head is what you could see flopping. Oh it's terrible. Um, but I have seen a ghost at their house. I swear to God, I'll put it on anything. I know I sound crazy, but I have seen someone. Uh, Luke's ex-girlfriend also saw someone like walking in the thing. And I just recently found this out too. And Luke also said that he, when he stays upstairs by himself, he always feels like a presence. And again, you know, Luke, he's pretty pragmatic. Like he's not gonna oh yeah, be all about, you know, ghosts and whatnot. So to hear him say that, I was like, uh, are you okay? Like, right. <laughs> there might be something up there, but you're definitely feeling something. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm excited. Let's go to see if we can see Miss Lamb's, uh, name yeah listed somewhere that'd be super cool to just full cool. circle come to go see that for her now yeah. the asylum since then does not exist anymore right like the mm -mm. original building no mm -mm. that's since been torn down oh man yeah asylums are like at the number one thing on my list that like royally creep me out yeah i i yeah. you could not pay me enough money to go into an abandoned asylum after dark 
No, I'd probably pee myself. Uh, yes. I legit have to wear the pants if you're going to take me somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, you know how places carry energy and they can hold energy and that's why places, you know, are haunted and, and whatnot. Right. To me, a place like that, I'm like, their energy was was a lot, I'm sure. A lot. And I don't want to be Very somewhere strong. like that where if something decides it wants to attach itself to me, though, no, that's not Mm-mm. a souvenir that I want to bring home. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, no, thank you. No, that creeps me out. That creeps me out. I'll keep my, I'll keep my Starbucks bin there mug. I'm going to leave the spirits <laughs> where, <laughs> where they're at. Please and thank you. That's funny. So, um, yeah. Well, we're running out of time, uh, mm-hmm. but great episode. It definitely started the ball rolling on other things too, just because it's, yeah, it, uh, it started, uh, it, I love that it's local because it makes us have these types of conversations, right? Because we're exactly. like, well, we know this place and we know this place. So um, I love that. I love that. It's kind of local because Oregon City for me is 10 minutes away. Um, and it makes me wonder, you know, is her family descendants still here still around you know right you don't, you don't know that so that'd be kind of cool sure. to figure out. good story good good uh good book Bridget thanks I yeah. appreciate that I'll, I'll go through a couple more of these and see yeah. if I can find anything else juicy worth reporting on because it makes for these good little 40 minute mm-hmm. episodes that we're doing right now so yeah. if it seemed like I was powering through it I just really wanted to make sure that I <laughs> I met our deadline on this and didn't give Fatina too much work in editing the audio and copy and pasting stuff. So this is great. Well, appreciate everything. Um, I hope you guys, uh, Patreons, if you haven't gotten a chance yet, you guys got a bonus episode last week uh, on Patreon where it's a video episode and it was an add-on to last week's episode for Carly Russell. An update on her, she's been arrested. Yes, she has. Um, So And charged. mm Mm-hmm. Yep. She turned herself in, which is, I guess, a one positive for her, but she has been charged for lying to the police and making a false report, I think. So yeah, I believe so, too. So, all right, pe- uh, Patreon, sorry. <laughs> all right, everyone, that's all the time we got time for today for. So, I think we're... Don't be a stranger. Yeah, we'll Yay. catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.